that is one of my top two favorite movies of all time, The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, it's very unique in the sense that there's, there's no nudity and there's no cussing, and it, it actually relies on plot and a great story to entertain you. It's a very odd concept, if you will. Um, uh, but uh, what happens from that point on in the story is Jacopo, the other knife fighter on the beach, he lives that out. He says when, when, when Monte Cristo spares his life, he says to him, I am your man forever. And he goes on to live that out. He's his personal butler. Uh, he's his errand boy. He's his chauffeur. He's his bodyguard. Whatever, from that point on, the rest of his life, whatever is needed by Monte Cristo, he's there for him. And he does it. And why? Is it because he's paid well? Is it because he has to? Is it because he wants to? Why is it that he does it? He does it simply because Monte Cristo showed him an amazing love. I mean, there was no reason to spare his life, right? He didn't know him. They just met. As a matter of fact, it was a risk not to kill him in that moment. And he could have killed him, joined the pirate ship, and just gone on about his merry way. And Jacopo in that moment realizes He's been given a gift that he didn't deserve by somebody that he's never met before. And so he looks at him and he realizes he's in that moment, he has that moment of clarity, realizing I should be dead right now. And the very fact that I even get to live and walk off this beach is because of you. And so because of that, the rest of my life is yours. And that's a very different motivation for serving somebody than we typically think, whether it be uh, to serve our own ends or because it makes us feel better or because we want to or because we get something out of it. He's saying, I recognize the only reason why I'm alive right now is because of you, and so the rest of my life is yours. And so this is where it kind of connects back in what we talked about last week. Last week, I spent a lot of time talking about the history of identity and how we see ourselves and how we uh, picture ourselves and how it's formed over time. And I talked about how uh, in traditional cultures, uh, if you go back to ancient times where this started, even in uh, our current time, we still have some remnants of that. There are some parts of the world who still look back to traditional identity formation. Uh, And in in a traditional identity formation, what happens is that we serve the needs of our family or of our community uh, because we are seeking the approval or the honor of our family or our community. And so whether it be a tribal leader or a patriarchal uh, system, we're looking to have that honor bestowed on us as a result of our service and giving ourselves to the needs of the community or the family. Now in sort of a postmodern time in society, which we are more familiar with, Uh, It's all about serving our own interests, our own needs, and our own agenda, and it's up to the rest of the world to respect us simply for being true to ourselves, and that you need to recognize that I'm following my path, I'm serving my needs, you serve your needs, I'll serve my needs, and you need to respect the decisions I'm making um, on my own. Now, uh, in both of those uh, identity formations, uh, it's very different than serving out of the reason for Jacopo's serving. Jacopo saw himself as a dead man from that point forward. The only reason why I'm alive is because of you. And he's not serving the needs of the community to somehow win over Monte Cristo's approval or uh, to be seen as the best of all his servants or uh, helpers. He's not serving as an extension of what he wants to do or his own self-actualization and then expecting or hoping that somebody else is going to recognize that and confer upon him on, you know, hey, you're being true to yourself. No, he's serving simply because he realizes he owes a debt that he'll never be able to repay. And he'd be a dead man without it. And that's a lesson that's very hard to learn in life. Uh, But we see it play out slowly in Peter's life. And so when, uh, I want to pick up a moment in Peter's life where 
<coughs> they've just shared together the Passover meal uh, with Jesus. Uh, it was known as the Last Supper. They leave out of the upper room, and they're headed up to the Mount of Olives. And on the way up there, Jesus just kind of stops them and talks with the 11 disciples who were there with him. Judas has already left. Uh, Judas has already rounded up a group of guys who are going to come and arrest Jesus. That's all in the works. Jesus knows this full well. The rest of the disciples don't know it, and so Jesus tells them that's what's about to go down. What's about to happen is this very night, I'm going to get arrested. They're going to take me away, and I've been telling you before, they're going to crucify me. So he, he lays that out for him. And in that moment, Peter, of course, stands up and interrupts the moment, and he says, hey, even if everyone falls away on account of you, I never will. Okay. So first of all, who's he talking about everyone? The other 10 guys who are there up on the hill with him. So even if all of these scaredy cats all run away, uh, I'm brave, brave like Sir Robin was, and I'm not going to run away at all. Some of y'all get my joke. Some of y'all don't. That's okay. Others, you can just Google these things, all right? Uh, but what does Peter think in that moment is going to happen? Like, what does he expect Jesus to say back when, when Jesus says, listen, they're going to come arrest me, and all y'all are going to leave me high and dry. And Peter looks back, he goes, not me, man. They might. I'm not. Uh, it, it, to me, it's sort of like that moment when the football coach says, all right, we're going out there. We're facing the number one team in the country. They're the defending champs. They're ranked number one again. They are bigger than you. They are stronger than you. They are faster than you. Some of you are going to walk off that field tonight on a stretcher, or come off that field tonight on a stretcher. They're going to take some of you out, all right? And then one of the, like the, the football captain stands up and goes, not me, coach, not me, uh-uh. I'm going to leave it all on the field tonight. Leave it all on the field. And then all the other guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's the coach say? That's what I want out of you. That's what I want out of you. That's the attitude I'm looking for right now, right? Like in that moment, Jesus is supposed to look at you and go, that's why I've been calling you the rock. Because you're the rock. That's, I don't know, I'm going I'm to build this church on. And that, you are the foundation of where we're going, man. The rest of you all, where are you at right now? You're going to be like Peter in this moment? You're going to stand up? You're going to get with it? But what's Jesus say? He says back to him, he goes, um, this very night, you're going to deny me three times. You're going like, to act like you don't even know me. Now, it's only the compassion of Jesus that doesn't mention that one of them is going to be a little girl. Because <laughs> if it was you or me, we'd look at it and go, man, you're going to be running from a little girl by the end of the night. Right? I mean, come on, if you knew it, you'd say it too, wouldn't you? But out of compassion, he just leaves that whole piece out of it. So what happens next is now Peter jumps in like the football captain again, and all the other teammates jump in too, and Peter says, no, 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 even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples all said the same. See, it's that rah, rah moment. Like, they're like, oh, they're all excited. No, no, we're going to do this. We, we. It's this hype moment, and Jesus is looking at it like, no, no, that's not going to happen. Sure enough, what happens? Jesus does get arrested. It doesn't go like the disciples think it's going to go. It goes exactly like Jesus says it's going to go. They all run for their lives. Peter tries to stick around, and then he denies them three times. And it says their eyes meet right on that third time, and he runs away sort of you know, realizing what's happened and in shame. And, and then if sort of you fast forward um, a little bit, you, you see the next time that they talk. And they talk about this moment, and Jesus looks at him, and it's sort of the follow-up of this over in John 21. But before I, I, I get there, I just want to kind of go back and say, why is it that Peter says that and believes that, even though that's not true? Like, he sees himself as strong and courageous. He sees himself as brave, but he's not. Why? 
I would submit that there's a piece of Peter that still, being in an ancient culture, is still looking for his identity based on his performance. You know, part, when, when, you're in an, when, when, you're, when you're in a performance-based environment, the way that you prove out that you're worthy of honor and approval is by separating yourself from everybody else, by showing I'm better than everybody else around you. I mean, after all, isn't that how you rise to the top in any organization, even within families, that you are the most brave, you're the most valiant, you're the most worthy of honor and respect, uh, a part of the community, that you would be the, considered the bravest warrior with the highest accolades. So it's, I love you more than all of these. Uh, I'm more brave than the rest of these. They all may walk away. I won't. It, it's, it's a performance-based identity. He's looking and saying, that's not me. That's not who I am. Now, it was who he was. It, it, or sorry, it wasn't who he was. He couldn't see who he actually was. He actually was the guy who was going to run away. Now, knowing this, the next time Jesus sees him, it's over in John 21, and Jesus walks up to him, and I think the first conversation they have, he says to him, Peter, do you love me? So he says, Peter, do you agape me? Where there's agape, which is a selfless, sacrificial kind of love. So he says, Peter, do you love me sacrificially? But here's the kicker, and here's the part that is, it really hurts. He says, do you really sacrificially love me more than these? That's what you said back in the upper room. You still sticking by that? And Peter looks back and he says, his you know, face falls, his you know, countenance falls. And he says, Lord, you know I, and he says, phileo you more than, he says, he just says Lord, Lord, you know I phileo you, which is basically saying, do I sacrificially love you? No, I'm, I'm more like a buddy. Like you, you want to go watch the game tomorrow? I'm your guy. You need to move a piano up three flights of stairs? Don't call right? And Peter recognizes that in the moment. Now, the day before, you know, or a couple days before, wherever that was, you know, a little while ago, he's looking at him saying, I love you more than everybody else. I'm willing to die for you. And clearly it didn't play out. And so Jesus says, you, you, you said you were going to sacrificially love me. Do you really still, are you still holding on to that? He said, no, no, I don't. Now, what had happened there was, and this is, this is just one degree off. And here's the problem. When you're at one degree off, you think you're going in the right direction, but you end up in a completely different place. That statement that Peter made is because his identity was based on his love for God. That's why he said it. Rather than being based on God's love for him. And there's a big difference in those two things. Often we will serve or give or make wise choices to show our love for God. But that's a very different motivation than doing it simply because we are already loved by God. And that's, that's kind of what I want to point out here in this, is it's a different motivation in trying to serve God or love God or give to God or make wise choices for God or healthy choices or moral choices for God simply because somewhere in the back of your mind, you, you feel like as if you, you need to earn God's love or his approval. I mean, is it, is it hard to not make a good choice for God and somewhere in the back of your mind go, yes, <laughs> did that for you, God, there's even moments, there's even, there's like, you know, sometimes a year you've made such good choices that week, you walk in kind of feeling so good about yourself, you're like, God, I'm in a good place with you right now. And, there's a, and, and if, if somebody were to pointedly ask you, you would never admit it, but there's a part of you that still thinks it like, God's got to be happy with me right now. He's got to be happy with me right now. Do you realize he's already happy with you? He already loves you? Even on the bad weeks, he loves you just the same. He doesn't love you any more on this week than, than that week. And a part of you, even, even when you ask the question, well, then what was the point? That betrays 
what, where we're one degree off in the difference of it. Uh, and in Peter's mind, he, was, he, was, he didn't fully understand the love of Jesus Christ. He didn't understand exactly what Jesus was going to be doing. Now, like Jacopo on the beach, who looks at his life and says, the rest of my life is yours because I'd be dead without you. Peter moves to that place eventually in his life. And Jesus looks at him, and after having multiple you know, conversations back and forth about agape love versus phileo love, etc., Jesus still looks at him, and, and every single time he says, feed my sheep, which is sort of, you know, they're sort of code words for, I still want you leading this. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, Peter, I'm still calling you to be the leader of this, and I still love you. And my love for you and my calling on your life isn't based on you being worthy of it. It isn't based on you deserving it. It isn't because you love me more than everybody else. It isn't because you're the only one who stood by me when everybody else failed. That's not why I chose you. That's not why I love you. I love you and I've called you simply because I love you. That's it. And this is so hard because when you don't get this, you will be convinced that there's no way God could ever use you again because of something that you've done. Like, I had potential, and God could have used me, but because of the decisions I've made and how my life's turned out, God's just kind of put me up on a shelf and, and has somehow, he's like, well, you know, I really hope this for you, but now since you did that, well, we're going to bump you down a few notches, and the best I could ask for you or hope for you is this right here, because you're not really worthy of this up here. That's sort of Peter's mindset. That's why he went back to fishing. I mean, I, I was called to be a fisher of men, but I can't do that anymore, not after what I just did. He's not going to want me for that. And, and what did Peter first say when... Jesus got on his boat. Peter first looks at me and goes, get off my boat, I'm a sinful man. In other words, I don't deserve to be in your presence. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I know, that's fine. It's not about that. It's not about you being worthy of it or deserving of it. I'm calling you to follow me. Come be fishers of men. Same time, he just switches metaphor from fishers of men to feed my sheep. And Peter's looking at him going, I don't deserve this. It's like, yeah, I know. Nothing's changed, Peter. Nothing's changed. You don't deserve it any more now than you did the day I first met you on the boat. And you're just as loved now as you were that first day on the boat. And I'm still calling you now just as I first did when you were on that boat. None of that has changed. None of it's changed at all. Now, the motivation for Peter eventually will change because Jesus looks at me and says, I know you, you, you ran like a little girl that night because of a little girl, but one day you won't. One day you're going to go where you don't want to go, you're going to allow people to lead you where you don't want to go, and eventually you're going to give your life for me in the same way that I gave my life for you. And on that day, you won't be doing it because you're trying to earn my love. It's going to be because you rest completely in my love. And it's not because you're finding your identity and your love for me, but simply because you recognize your life is mine. And every day that you live is a day indebted to me. That's where Jacopo was on the beach. And that's why Jacopo made the decision he made. He says simply, I am yours forever. That's why, you know, you, you go back, why is it that you love people that are hard to love? Why is it that you forgive people that you don't want to forgive? Why is it that you're willing to bless people, whether it be people in Louisiana or here in, in Virginia Beach, why would you bless people uh, who, who you don't even know? Why would you serve people that may never thank you? Why? If I'm doing it because I want to show my love for God, if I'm doing it because I want to be considered a good person or a good Christian or I have some sort of status within the church or I have people recognize me for what I'm doing, what's going to happen is at some point you're going to flame out. At some point the cost is going to be too high. 
At some point, the risk is going to be too great. At some point, the demand is going to be more than you, 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 thought, you thought you signed up for. Which is why in that moment, Peter says, even if I die for you, I'll die for you. And then when he's in the moment and they see what's happening to Jesus and there's rumors of crucifixion, that's not just death. That is a brutal death. That is, we're going to torture you until you die death. It was the most heinous, torturous, cruelest form of execution they could come up with in that day and time. And Peter sees this is what Jesus is facing. And then they say, hey, aren't you one of them? This isn't just are you willing to die. This is are you willing to suffer until the life drains out of you, die. And in that moment, he goes, that's a little more than I signed up for. I'm out. If your motivation is anything other than where Jacopo's was on the beach, at some point, you bail. And this isn't just, just doesn't just go for you know, something like where your life's asked of you, it's you know, moral decisions, financial decisions, relational decisions. This is why when you fully get this and you, and you hear these statements, loved people, love people. Forgiven people, forgive people. Blessed people, bless people. Saved people, serve people. What each of those is pointing out and bringing out is when you realize this is who I am, not because of what I'm doing, but it's just who I am and what's been done for me. It's a different motivation. Now, a couple of weeks ago, it was sort of hard when we started this series. Uh, we started off and I asked all of you all to stand up and say, I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. Now, since that time, Pastor Alex has sort of, you know, he's joked with us, you know, in the announcement time. And he's been doing it with the staff. He's like, well, apparently I'm a murderer, so I guess it doesn't really matter at this point, right? Um, and it's, it's so uncomfortable that we almost want to make a joke out of it, right? Because we don't really want to accept that reality. Because we just can't, we have a hard time picturing ourselves as that. That is how ingrained a performance-based identity is. Because there's still a piece of us that says our acceptance and our love by, you know, from others is still to some degree dependent upon what we've done to earn it or deserve it. And so I have to be worthy of it in some sense. So if I'm really going to not just say I'm a murderer because everybody else is because you asked us to on Sunday morning, because technically according to Scripture, you know, according to subline you know, 6C under verse 12, under that subsection of what Jesus said and the derivative meaning of it, technically, yes, I am a murderer, but no, I'm not really. Right? That's still what you're saying, even when you said it in the back of your mind. I am an adulterer. Well, not like the ones you know, that are brought up on you know, Extra at night or on an ET or any of those shows. I'm not that kind of adulterer. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just a regular guy. You know, I'm just a regular girl. You know, I just, just like everybody else has, you know, every, we all have our things. I'm in that category. We struggle with it. But until you embrace and accept the reality, I am a murderer, I am an adulterer, I am selfish, I am a sinner, until you fully embrace the reality of who you are, it's only then that you can come to the point that Jacob had on the beach where he realizes, I deserve death. Because of what I've done and who I am, the decisions I make, I don't have any future. This life really is all there is because I don't deserve to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. I don't deserve to spend eternity with God. I don't deserve to have a relationship with him. I mean, who could have a relationship with me for all eternity? It's hard enough in a marriage. 
And God looks at me and says, I'm not putting up with that for all eternity. Something's got to change. When you realize you need a Savior and you need to be forgiven, it's only then that you realize when God, that God's given it to you, not because you deserve it, not because you were worth it, simply because he loves you, because you're also his child. And so Peter, over time, eventually grasps this and gets this. And so when he writes his final letter, uh, you know it in your scriptures and in the Bible as Second Peter, what they would do when they would write a letter, like when we write a formal letter and we're going to put an envelope, like we put like our name and address in the one corner, we put the uh, addressee's name and address in the other corner. Why do we do that? So when we put in the envelope, it shows through the little windows on those fancy envelopes, right? Well, in their day and time, they would have their own procedure for writing a letter, and because it was a scroll, they would write who it's from and then who it's to, and then they would give a formal greeting. Uh, and they, so that way, the first thing you saw when you opened up the scroll was who it's from and who it's to, and it would be who it's from and your title and who it's to and their title. And so the very last letter that Peter writes, he starts off and he says, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, most translations don't translate that word slave. Uh, the, the, the Greek word is doulos. Uh, most will translate it as servant. Uh, and the reason why is because it's really hard for us, especially in America, to separate out our own cultural historical understanding of the concept of slavery and the biblical concept of slavery from a Roman world. We, we, we can't do it, and so most translators have said it'd be more accurate to say the word servant than to say the word slave. However, the word servant sort of takes away a, a very crucial piece of the understanding of this word, and so it's sort of these moments where you have to sort of get over your own American cultural biases where slavery is wrapped up with segregation and racism and cruelty and understand slavery from the time and the concept in which it was written. Uh, the word literally means someone who belongs to another, uh, this, or it could be also a bond servant. Now, what a bond servant is is somebody who is indebted to somebody else because they have paid for them. In other words, they have bought them, not bought them on an auction block because they were considered property, but rather uh, it could be a free person who owed a debt so big uh, that they could not pay it, and so instead of them having to go to jail for it, the person said, I'll pay your debts. And the person says back, and I will serve you for the fact that I don't have to go to jail for the rest of my life. That was sort of the way that arrangement worked. Uh, it was to signify that this person does not, they've given up all ownership rights. Uh, the closest thing I would say to this concept is uh, Simon Peter, an enlisted military member of Jesus Christ. Is there anything closer to slavery in America than... <laughs> I've never heard so many of y'all Amen. All the things I've ever said, you're like, amen, preach it. Why? Because you have signed yourself over at some point and said, wherever you want to send me in the world, I will go. I will take your orders. Me and all those who are attached to me are yours. My body is yours. My life is yours. Everything is yours. I don't have a say anymore. I give it all to you. That's the closest thing, that's the closest concept I, I could give to you for when he writes this, a slave to Jesus Christ. Uh, in the New Testament, it, had, it didn't have a negative connotation at all. In the New Testament, um, it, it was actually uh, the highest dignity uh, that could be you know, given or, or, or spoken of as somebody who is willingly give their lives over to Jesus Christ. To literally say to Jesus, wherever you send me, I will go. I will do whatever it is that you want me to do. Now, some of the key differences are is uh, a servant serves someone, but a slave belongs to someone. 
It's the biggest key difference. As a servant serves someone, a slave belongs to someone. Now, because we can't use the term freely in modern times, we don't call anybody who serves at Essential a slave. <laughs> and I hope none of you feel like that from your own cultural understanding. We don't really want to do that. Um, but because we don't use the right word, we still give off the wrong connotation. So like, for instance, when you, know, you, you sign up to serve, you've signed up to serve, whether it be, you know, you've, it's because you wanted to. And then you say, well, when is a good time for you to serve? Well, let me tell you, let's see, well, not this weekend, it's Labor Day weekend. I got things I want to do today, it's a really good weekend, so I can't really serve today. Um, next week, next week will be good. Well, the next week comes, you're like, yeah, that's why I said next week. It's always next week is a good week, because, you know, in a little while, things are going to slow down for me, and it'll all be good, and then, then, then I'll have time to serve. So that's sort of our concept of service. Is service is sort of a voluntary, optional thing uh, that I do because I, I, I want to do the right thing. And I think it's a good thing that we serve at church. And I, I'm going to give back in the, in the same way people have given back to me. And it's something I know I need to do as a Christian. And it feels good when we serve. We have all these kind of mindsets and men- mentality on it. It's a different concept than I, I'm a slave to God. Uh, my life is 100% indebted to Him. What am I but His? Every breath I have comes from him, and my future 100% belongs to him. Without him, I am nothing. You want me to hang out and invest in e-kids for one hour on a Sunday morning? Done. Done. Whatever, man. Done. You want me to help load up some boxes to a truck? Done. The least I could do. I am yours, God, forever. That's a different mentality. That's a different mentality. It's a hard place to get to. Because somehow almost we think like as if we deserve a pat on the back when we served. What, what expectation does a slave have when they've done what's been asked of them? Right? How often does the Secretary of the Navy call you up and say, hey, I just want to thank you for being willing to go over to Bahrain, man. <laughs> you really came through for us. I appreciate it. Just thank your family on behalf of me. As a matter of fact, give me your wife's number. I want to thank them myself. It doesn't happen, right? You were given an order, you fulfilled it, and it's like, well, yeah, that's what you said you would do. And the same mentality was there for that of a slave. And so Peter is saying, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I am your man forever. And see, this is a mentality that that shifts not just in service, but in giving. I recognize everything I have comes from God. This isn't my stuff, it's your stuff. Uh, This is what David says. David is the a king of all of Israel, and they wanted to build a temple so that people had an opportunity to come from all over the world to have a loving relationship with God that would last for all eternity. And so he wants to give a, a gift to it. And he has this mentality where he says this in second, uh, I think it's second Chronicle, you know, First Chronicles 29. Notice how he starts off with an identity uh, qualifier. He says, but who am I? And who are we as a people that we should even be able to give like this? Like, just think about that for a moment. Like, like, when it comes to offering relief for somebody down who's, who's been hit with a hurricane, who are we that we should even be so blessed as to be able to do this right now? That's his mentality. Not, well, you know, I just, you know, it's a good thing, and I just want to make sure everybody knows. You know. No, he just looks at this, I, I, who am I that I even get to do this? And he looks up at God, he says, I can, you know, give as generously as this. He says, God, everything comes from you, and we only have given what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight. He says, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't belong, I mean, I don't deserve to be in your family. You, know, you really should look at me as an outsider because that's who I am, really. And it's hard to accept, you know, that God says, no, no, you're mine. 
And then he goes on, he says, all, all of our days are like a shadow without hope. So in other words, if it wasn't for you, God, we would have no hope. Our life truly would be over, and it's hard for us to get back to the realization that without God, the evolutionists are right. You're just a group of carbon-based molecules that just fortunately formed you for a brief time, and then it's over. That's either that or your loving creation by a heavenly God who wants to spend all eternity with you. And in that reality, it changes my understanding of who I am. And then he says, God, we have all this abundance to be able to provide like this. Everything comes from your hand and it all belongs to you. And he makes this sort of declarative uh, pronouncement almost in song. And he says, yours, O Lord, is all greatness and power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Lord, all of it is your kingdom. And you are exalted as head over all, for wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things, and in your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. So now, O oh God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. See, this is a mentality that I really hope my teenagers understand. Just to pick on teenagers for a little bit. Is there any class of people in our country that feels more sense of entitlement (laughs) than they and we did as a teenager, right? Because when you're a kid, you just sort of uh, of understand, you know, you don't have anything. But when you're a teenager, you're trying to teach them the value of money and the value of possessions and things, and so, you know, they have money that's their own. Now, I hire my kids, and I pay my kids to work. And when they have things, they'll look at me like, well, I bought that with, with what? <laughs> my money, right? So for instance, I don't just give you a car, the same thing my parents did with me. Um, I'll pay half, you pay half, right? So, so you need to pay, you need to have some, some, something vested in this. You're not just getting a car. You, know, you need to put, you have to have some skin in the game. Um, so you, you've worked for it, right? Now, even the half money you put up, where did that come from? <laughs> I think almost every dollar of it at one point was in my bank account right? And just check yourself for a minute. Do you realize the hourly wage I am paying you is far and above I pay every other employee, every other person I hire to come into this house? And it's not because you're more skilled. (laughs) Why is that? It's because you're mine. That's why you have it. So before you, this week, get behind the wheel with your license with the mentality of, this is my car, I'll go where I want, and dad, you can ask me to maybe give somebody a ride, but if it fits with my schedule, I'll let you know. That didn't happen. (laughs) I don't want you to all go picking on my kids over this, but what I want to make sure is that we don't have the mentality of, this is mine, and if I feel like it, I'll help you out just because I'm a good kid. Rather, oh my gosh, Dad, I cannot believe that you're entrusting me with a car. I recognize that legally I can't even own it, and it's still in your name, even though I get to call it my car. Wow. I get to call it my car, and it's not really even my car, because you're paying the registration, and you're paying those taxes that have to be due every year. 
I can't even get insurance for myself. The only reason why I can even legally drive it, Dad, is simply because you're paying you know, the insurance and putting it on your name, and you get a ding on this, and you're having to pay more for all the cars in the household simply because I'm going to be driving. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Whatever you need me to do with that car, Dad, I'll do. My brother or sister need a ride? I'll give it to them. You need me to stop by the, by, by, by the store on the way home? I'll do it. Whatever, Dad. You, you know, I just, I'm just thankful that I actually have a car that I get to drive around. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> we haven't had that full conversation. We, we've been having bits of that conversation. He, he, the reality is, the humbling thing is, all of us have a teenager mentality before God, though. Everything we... That may be true for, for our teenagers, but I earned this. I worked for this. I went to school for this. And in a day and age where we talk about who has privilege, who has, doesn't, doesn't have privilege, you in America, all of y'all, with all your knowledge, all your skills, place you in any other country in the world, you don't have what you have. Just pause for a moment and thank, thank God for where you are. In the same way you thank God that you're not right in the path of Hurricane Ida, also thank God that you're also in a place in a day and a time where you can provide for somebody else. What do I have, God, but it's not from you? It's all yours. I no more earned this than my son earned that money from Money Yard or doing dishes. It's all yours. It changes your mentality for, for, for giving. It changes your mentality for, for, for morality. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and the church has all kinds of moral issues. He doesn't ground it or base it in, hey, now, if you want God to love you, you need to be doing this. If you want to be considered a good Christian, you need to be doing this. If you want to be, you know, be able to have a position or role in church, you need to be doing this. No, what's he say? Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, come on now, you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who, uh, and you've received this Holy Spirit from God. For you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Don't honor God, or sorry, don't, don't you know, preserve your body or make right choice with your bodies so you can receive God's honor. No, he says, this is the way you honor God, by the choices you make, simply by recognizing God my body is yours. How could I possibly do that with this life that you've spared that you're going to spend all eternity with? I'm yours. I am your man forever. I'm yours. It's a different mentality. And this is where, you know, when it comes to a sense of identity, this is why it's so crucial that you understand who I truly am because it impacts what you do, but most importantly, why you do it. The most deceitful sin is the lie we tell ourselves for why we do the good things that we do. If it's out of any other motivation than what you saw with Jacopo on the beach, you're in the same place as Peter. They're looking at Jesus. I'm better than all these, man. You know I wouldn't do that to you. Is it based in your sense of your love for God and what you're going to do to earn his approval, or is it based simply in understanding you're loved by God? And you're his. Would you join with me as we close in prayer? Search me, O God, and then know my innermost thoughts. Father, help me see what I cannot see. Because, like Peter, each of us have those moments where we see ourselves as brave or courageous or moral or good when we're not. 
Every one of us, Father, before you is just like a teenager who thinks they are owed or deserve or has earned the immense privileges and opportunities that we have. Father, help us see ourselves as we truly are, as a murderer and an adulterer and as selfish and as a sinner who's only been saved by your love because we're your child. We are ones who can love because we've been loved. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. We can bless, Father, because you've blessed us. We can serve, Father, because you've saved us. Move us to the place, Father, we look to you and say, I am yours for life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.